This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. When James Parkinson's originally uh, described Parkinson's disease, it was thought just to be a movement disorder. This is a disease that needs to be recognized early because there are treatments that might affect the natural history may slow down the course of the disease. Yeah, I was very happy about being diagnosed. I felt like I was young. I felt like I was healthy. I felt like I took care of myself. I saw my orthopedic surgeon because I was feeling a lot of pain in my leg, and uh, he pretty much told me it was all in my head. I think it's important to understand what Parkinson's is. It is a chronic disease, but it's one that you can live with and you can have a long and fulfilling life with it. All the treatments we have right now deal with symptoms. They're basically band-aids for the disease. They don't address the underlying disease, which just keeps getting worse anyway. My mind is still that of a person that was racing bicycles, but my body isn't. It seems to me for the next five or ten years, I'll probably be able to keep going more or less as I am now and well beyond that who knows you know maybe it's hard it's hard to imagine going further than that the life expectancy is almost the same as for people who don't have Parkinson's disease typically patients do not die from Parkinson's disease they die with Parkinson's disease Many people don't understand what Parkinson's disease is. Parkinson's disease is the occurrence of a group of symptoms and signs that together constitute Parkinsonism. In the absence of any obvious known cause and without evidence of more widespread disease. Parkinson's disease is a characteristic clinical disorder uh, notable for three major symptoms. Uh, One is a tremor, which is often the first one that appears, a very characteristic tremor. Another is bradykinesia, which is slowness of movement. And the last is rigidity or stiffness. And those are the characteristic features, and it's, it's not just those three symptoms. It's the way in which they begin. It's the way that they progress. It's a, it's a, it's a larger picture which is recognizable by many clinical neurologists as idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Now, there are other conditions which involve some of those symptoms uh, called uh, Parkinsonism. So they're more general forms of this, which are not necessarily specifically due to Parkinson's disease, which is a more stereotypical disorder. How have things been going for you for the last several months? It is due to a loss of a number of neurotransmitters, uh, including dopamine. The dopamine, which is produced in the cells with the generating in this region called substantia nigra in the brain, is one of those chemicals that it's required to keep those wires connected. It's also worth to mention is a progressive disease that um, Patients usually develop a very mild form of the disease that uh, gets worse and worse with time as more and more of those cells uh, degenerate. The majority of individuals with Parkinson's will experience some type of cognitive problem over the course of their illness. Typically at the time of diagnosis, this tends to be relatively mild and may just involve slight attention difficulties. As the disease progresses, certainly many more individuals become um, what we would call in a state of mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. Now it's actually a very common disease, and we've come to realize over the last few years that 
after Alzheimer's disease, this is the second most common neurodegenerative disease that there is. And probably in the United States at this time, there are more than a million people affected. It's a disease that occurs a little bit more commonly in men than women. It occurs, as I've said, with advancing age, and it leads to increasing disability unless patients are treated, and even then there may be some limitation. You know, when you're sick, you usually get better. I thought, well, you know, okay, so this is, this is a problem, but, you know, it'll probably get better, which is, of course, totally wrong. Parkinson's disease is a highly variable disease. We see patients who have had Parkinson's disease for 30 and 40 years after diagnosis. Uh, some are still walking into the clinic, and other patients uh, have greater disability. The only symptoms I really have that are serious at the moment are the tremor in the hand and sometimes a tremor in the foot. When I walk, sometimes uh, I walk a little funny. Sometimes my right hand is starting to jitter around a little bit. The fact is that most patients are very individualistic and the progression of the disease can be completely different. Parkinson's affects the right side of my body, and so I drag it. And when I'm tired or frustrated and my stress levels up, I can really see that my right side just kind of hangs a little limp and my foot cramps a lot. I have a slight tremor, but it's not too bad. I mean, I don't think it's noticeable, but it hasn't progressed much in the past five years. When patients initially come in, they usually have had symptoms from one to two years prior to coming into the evaluation. So usually they're complaining of some vague symptoms. They're not necessarily uh, completely indicative of Parkinson's disease. So you want to do a thorough neurological evaluation to make sure that what you're looking at really truly is Parkinson's disease. Follow it with your eye. Keep your head still. Well, I was dragging my right leg a little bit. I was limping a little bit. And once in a while, for almost uh, six months, once in a while, I had tremors on my leg, my right leg, actually, and not my hand. I noticed in my hand uh, tremors. I didn't know that's what they were called. It just seemed like I, I was like a spasm in my hand. Finally, when my wife saw it one day, we went to the uh, internist. Right away, he said, I think you have Parkinson's. And I said, There's this, I'm healthy. Uh, nobody in my family has ever had Parkinson's. That couldn't be. It should be noted that about 30% of patients who uh, come in and get diagnosed do not have a tremor. So I think sometimes in the... Uh, primary care circles are some other health providers, they look for a tremor as that's the absolute test, but it's not. It is a complex interplay of, of symptoms and findings. It might be greater clumsiness with a hand or an irregular footstep that develops over time. In 75% of people, there is often a tremor that develops that uh, may be intermittent and is usually most apparent when the hand is in the lap or suspended when one is walking. So that tremor looks like an, an irregular rotation or it could be a twitching, but it is a regular movement, meaning that it is not random but follows a rhythm. Many people are uh, easily able to reduce or extinguish the tremor by looking at the limb that's affected or by moving it. It's hard to believe when you 
when you have control yourself, it's hard to believe that somebody can't just stop it. In recent years, we've come to realize that there are a number of symptoms other than motor symptoms that occur in Parkinson's disease. Also, there are odd sensory complaints and there may be pain. Typically pain, for example, about a shoulder on one side or both sides. Pain that might mimic a rotator cuff syndrome, for example. We don't understand why the pains occur. We don't understand what the basis is. Um, And these can be sometimes quite bewildering to patients or distressing to patients. Before the surgery, my legs used to freeze. Took me a while to, to unfreeze. With Parkinson's disease, as time goes on, there may also be a loss or a reduction in um, uh, the ability to keep oneself upright. I used to fall backward six, seven, eight times a day. Constantly I kept falling. I was bruised. I'm going to push you backward like this. I want you to resist me, all right? I won't let you fall. Are you ready? Go. (laughs) All right. Well done. I promised you I'd catch you. (laughs) Thank goodness I did. With advanced Parkinson's disease, there may be uh, a disturbance in blood pressure control. And so patients who develop this may note fairly significant lightheadedness upon standing. Another autonomic problem in Parkinson's disease is a variety of urinary complaints and constipation. This may precede the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease by a number of years. In surveys of patients um, who've had Parkinson's disease for 10 or 15 or more years, uh, depression and anxiety may be the most disabling symptom. They definitely have bad days and bluer days, and Parkinson's it goes with depression and it's one of the things that I, I keep my eye on and I know my doctor keeps his eye on for me. The non-motor complications of Parkinson's disease that include depression and anxiety, these are extremely prevalent with probably between 40 to 50 percent of patients experiencing depression specifically over the course of their illness at some point. One thing to note about depression in Parkinson's disease is that people may not look classically depressed. For many people with, um, with Parkinson's disease, depressive and anxiety conditions include uh, the feeling of being more edgy, uh, trouble with falling asleep, and prone to tearfulness. I do acupuncture for uh, the Parkinson's, and I think the acupuncture is really beneficial for getting the stress levels down. There's been um, A number of studies released showing that SSRIs, um, including medications of the Prozac family, uh, as well as um, some of the older medications, the tricyclic medications, may be useful in helping uh, depressive symptoms in Parkinson's disease. Sometimes just in my bed, I just pull the covers over my head going, I just need this day to end. But that doesn't happen very often. the next day happens and joy comes in the morning and, and the darkness is over and I face another day. The memory impairment associated with Parkinson's disease is oftentimes more subtle than that seen with Alzheimer's disease so that patients have quite good grasp of their immediate surroundings and day-to-day plans but notice 
slightly greater difficulties in organizing information and in following through on a set plan, such as going through a complex recipe for a device like a car through uh, a number of steps. Uh, and we call this um, executive dysfunction. It's really the neuropsychiatric issues and the decreased cognition that both patients and caregivers complain about, again, is impacting their quality of life most significantly. About 30% of people with Parkinson's disease are going to develop a significant impairment of cognitive function. That commonly that's late in the course of the disease. And if a patient develops impaired cognitive function very early on, we think of other disorders that's, that simulate Parkinson's disease. Disorders such as diffuse Lewy body disease, which is a quite different disorder than classic Parkinson's disease, but which m may require a specialist to distinguish. Um, one of the things with Parkinson's is insomnia, and uh, I find a lot of the women online late at night with me. <laughs> and that, that's, it's just a little bit of a relief to know that you're just not fighting this by yourself. Sleep disturbances are quite common in Parkinson's disease, uh, and there can be a variety of causes. You know, I think it's very important for anyone who's developed problems with sleep to report to their doctor how the sleep disturbance developed, over what period of time, and with what relationship to new medications, and to work out the best strategies, since so many factors, including mood, bladder control, uh, comfort, anxiety, can play a role in this, con this sort of um, disturbance. Patients may have difficulty with speech. Their voice may become soft, poorly modulated. Uh, they may have difficulty with articulating various words and, and so on. So that we encourage patients to have speech therapy. Speech does not uh, seem to respond as well to our medications for Parkinson's disease as does um, the movement symptoms. Parkinson is very responsive to other illnesses. If they get a medical illness on top of the Parkinson's, their Parkinson's will get worse. And often patients get very anxious and panic because suddenly their Parkinson's is much worse and they think the disease has progressed. And generally, what has really happened is the patient is reacting to another illness, which makes the Parkinson symptoms worse. And this is temporary, generally. Well, one of the things that Dr. Amnoff told me um, that I really appreciated, he said it would be better for you not to research all the symptoms that possibly might come your way. He said that if you research all the things that might happen, you're going to anticipate it. And the brain is a funny thing in that sometimes you might anticipate something that's not actually there. Because I don't know, when something's new, I have to ask him. Is this what's supposed to happen? Is this normal? The best clues that we have gotten to the progression of Parkinson's disease over the last few years come from human genetics. That is looking at families in particular that are affected by Parkinson's disease, where the disease is clearly inherited. And I should just say at the beginning that most Parkinson's disease is not highly hereditary, so those 
patients uh, that are affected, their families, need not worry excessively about the risk to other family members. But there clearly are some families where it is highly hereditary, and the disease is clearly passed down from one generation to the next, and human geneticists have taken advantage of those families, used their DNA to map the genes that are responsible, and over the last 10 to 15 years now, we have identified a series of genes which we now know to cause Parkinson's disease. So the question is, which of those genes is going to turn out to be important for most people with Parkinson's disease, for whom this, it is not a hereditary condition? Well, we know that one of the other genes that's been implicated in Parkinson's disease, that that gene product called alpha-synuclein, accumulates in the brain of basically everybody with Parkinson's disease, including the ones where there's no mutations in synuclein or no known mutations at all. These are the people where there's not even a high family hereditary component to the disease. This protein accumulates in their brain. So the green is the VMAP florin and the blue is the uh, PSN5? Mm -hmm. So we think that alpha-synuclein has a central causative role in almost all forms of Parkinson's disease. And the question is why, again, do some people get the disease and others do not? What we think, there is evidence from genetic studies and other studies that basically simply making more of this protein, more of the normal alpha-synuclein protein, is sufficient to cause Parkinson's disease. Many of us believe that the cause of Parkinson's disease relates both to a genetic susceptibility and also perhaps exposure to some toxin or other in the environment. And just what that toxin might be um, is difficult to say, but certainly there have been a number of suggestions regarding, for example, exposure to certain pesticides or herbicides um, that may be of relevance. The incidence of Parkinson's in some of the rural areas where there's a heavy use of pesticides, it's, it's been quite well documented for the last you know, 25 years or so. Would these people have to have a genetic predisposition? It still remains to be answered, but most likely yes. There does seem to be a relationship with head injuries and Parkinson's disease. People who've had a severe head injury with loss of consciousness have a slightly increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease in later life. Certain occupations have been found by epidemiological studies to be associated with a higher risk of Parkinson's disease. There are basically two hypotheses that we've had over the years about the pathogenesis of Parkinson's disease. One actually concerns dopamine itself. It's the dopamine neurons which degenerate in Parkinson's disease, which disappear, and as a result, patients have a dopamine deficiency. But at the same time, we know that dopamine is actually a pretty toxic compound. It's a normal neurotransmitter at all of our brains, but it's actually quite toxic. And the cells that, that make dopamine have to have ways of dealing with this toxic compound to prevent it from actually killing themselves. And basically what we think is that for most people that don't get the disease, that they can handle the toxin. But for people with Parkinson's disease, they can't handle the toxin anymore. And the dopamine itself ends up killing the cells that make it, which results in a dopamine deficiency. The other factor is this protein alpha-synuclein, which we think has a very general role in the disease. And we think that the disease may be actually more than just the deficiency of dopamine or related to dopamine, because people get these cognitive problems and other problems which are not strictly due to the deficiency of dopamine. And we know 
that this protein alpha-synuclein doesn't just accumulate and kill dopamine neurons, it accumulates in many other neurons in the nervous system. And that accounts for probably a lot of the cognitive problems and other problems that Parkinson's patients get. And so the idea is that if synuclein goes up, it's going to, first of all, before it kills cells, impair all kinds of neural circuits and the behavior of your brain as a whole before you've ever lost any neurons. And that it basically starts as a functional disturbance, which eventually results in the death of some cells, such as dopamine neurons. And this actually changes the way we think about Parkinson's disease, because clinicians, pathologists, and others have for many years focused on the idea and the fact that you do lose dopamine neurons. They do disappear. But there are still some left. And before you ever lose the cells, what we predict, and based on our research, is that there's a functional disturbance which precedes the loss of cells. And and the really good thing about a functional disturbance is is that if we can identify this and characterize it in patients, we can actually do something about the disturbance in function before they've in fact lost those cells. And so we think this gives a great insight and a a way to intervene in the disease before it has progressed very far. The real challenge now is not just to find treatment for the symptoms, but to find treatment for the underlying disease. And this is much more complicated because we have to understand what that underlying disease process really is. All the treatments we have right now deal with symptoms. They're basically band-aids for the disease. They don't address the underlying disease, which just keeps getting worse anyway. So we really need to understand that underlying problem before we can do something about it. Both of my parents passed away from cancer at age 50, and I felt like that was my great fear. And uh, so I was protecting myself and reading all the literature on cancer, and then (laughs) Parkinson's came along. It was a shock to me. You know the feeling of somebody pouring cold ice water on your head? That's the feeling. It was hard to accept it. And in the beginning, I didn't have so much, so such severe uh, symptoms that uh, you know really interfere with my everyday life. I was at my GP for a my annual physical, and he asked me what this shaking going on. What was that all about? And I frankly didn't know. Um, so he sent me off to a neurologist who gave me the diagnosis in uh, early early stages and, and uh, it was kind of hard for me to, to accept it that, and, and I didn't for a while I think um, I continued on just as ignoring the fact that I had it until certain things became more and more of a problem. One of the challenges for addressing the heart of the problem is early diagnosis. We need to identify patients who we can treat early to prevent the disease before they've actually developed a lot of symptoms. Physicians often have as much difficulty uh, as diagnosing Parkinson's disease as patients' families do in recognizing that something actually is wrong other than simply the advance of the years. The symptoms of the disease, for example, can include a certain slowness of movement, a certain uh, lack of facial expression, a certain change in the voice which may become more monotonous and poorly modulated. Patients may become depressed or they may look as if they're depressed even if they're not depressed. 
So there, may, there are grounds for misdiagnosis, for example, confusing depression with Parkinson's disease, that um, even experienced physicians sometimes may have difficulty in coping with. I became symptomatic with Parkinson's symptoms around 2002 or three, and I was training for a marathon, and uh, my legs started cramping up, and I had just all sorts of trouble running where I had been fine three or four months before and had successfully run the New York Marathon. But I think I had an inkling that things were coming. I remember one time in particular I was, I was very upset at work and uh, my whole body started shaking and I, I thought, well, that's pretty weird. And then there was a time I was giving a talk and I found it hard to control the laser pointer. I saw my orthopedic surgeon because I was feeling a lot of pain in my leg and uh, he pretty much told me it was all in my head. And it wasn't until I had a little tremor in my hand, which I thought was low blood sugar, that uh, the hand doctor referred me to a neurologist. He never came out and said that I had Parkinson's, but you could tell he really hinted or alluded to it. And I saw Dr. Christine, and uh, he did a barrage of tests, and he said, I think you know what I'm going to say. And I was like, it's all in my head. And it wasn't all in my head, it was Parkinson's. The diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is a clinical diagnosis. There's no test that can say you do or you do not have Parkinson's disease. It's, it's therefore very important that physicians always have in their mind the possibility of this disease, particularly in a patient who, for example, might present with what appears to be depression. Now, there's no substitute, unfortunately, for a detailed clinical examination. And I think it's important that primary care doctors, for example, uh, undertake in any patient who appears with what seems to be depression a general neurological examination to exclude an underlying uh, neurological cause for the patient's symptoms. There are some caregiver questionnaires that they can fill out as well because sometimes it is difficult for the patient themselves to really acknowledge what's going on and part of that may be because there are certain changes in the brain which make it difficult for people to fully appreciate their own uh, symptoms. You cannot uh, clearly make the diagnosis by simply giving the patient a, a trial of medication and giving a trial of medication too early in the course of the disease has the potential to do harm. So that's something that we try to discourage. I think there's actually a need for anybody in whom the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is suspected to be seen by a neurologist, a specialist in other words, who can evaluate the situation and come up with a definitive diagnosis and can suggest a course of treatment that is likely to be most helpful to the patient. I remember uh, waking in the middle of the night and I, th I thought this is not, this has all been a dream and uh, I stayed awake for several hours thinking and praying <laughs> and then and I remember I think that's it started to hit me and I cried and uh, at that moment everything seems the darkest you know because it's unknown I was afraid many patients want to come and see us because they um, either have uncertainties about the diagnosis uh, or want a second opinion. And that really is an important role that I believe we play. For example, um, 
many patients are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease because they have a tremor. Well, now, we all know, I hope, that there are many causes for tremor other than Parkinson's disease. For example, the, the actress Catherine Hepburn had quite a marked tremor, but she did not have Parkinson's disease. Uh, she had a, a separate disorder that we call essential tremor. Essential tremor is one where uh, when the hands are outstretched or when one is moving an object from, another, from one location to another that a tremor is observed. Typically, it's of a higher frequency than that is seen with Parkinson's disease. And typically, um, there is no significant slowness. Although the tremor may interfere with um, activities, uh, there isn't limb slowness, as is often seen with Parkinson's disease. It's important, I think, that patients are seen so that a correct diagnosis can be established. Some patients who we see who are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease by their local doctors, in fact, have a reversible cause of Parkinsonism. So they may have been taken a particular medication um, which itself may induce Parkinsonism. And unless that is recognized, uh, the disorder will continue and will lead to increasing disability. If it is recognized, what we do is urge the patient and the patient's uh, physician to discontinue the offending medication. It's important for the local physician to realize that if they withdraw the offending medication, the Parkinsonism that it has caused may take six months or a year even to resolve. For those sorts of reasons, I, I really firmly believe that it's important to get an evaluation by a neurological specialist uh, early on in the course of the disease. So I know you've seen Dr. Amanoff recently and were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. The way we treat the disease now is somewhat different from the way that we did years ago, and we can treat it more effectively with fewer side effects and for longer. Um, at the same time, I think it's going to become even more important to refer patients to specialists in the future as we understand more about what actually causes this disease because then it will be very, become very important in terms of the treatment. It may be that some medications actually slow the progression of the disease. I'm on something called Azelec that uh, uh, is supposed to delay the progression of the disease, but it also, I found, uh, has alleviated some of the symptoms. The best treatment is going to come from having a multidisciplinary team available to see an individual and then come together collectively to think about how best to treat them and to provide a comprehensive uh, treatment plan. When you come to see the neurologist, you should really be prepared for that visit. I talk about this with my patients in terms of trying to be an advocate for themselves. Communicating with doctors is, is really important. When I, whenever I go to a doctor, I, I think about things beforehand. I sometimes make a little list. A lot of patients come in with multiple complaints. So it's important for them to know that make a list of all the symptoms you want to discuss, but the one that is the most troublesome to you is the one that should be discussed first. In talking to patients, it's very important that they understand the various treatment options that are available to them. And we can put those really into three groups. There's a group that requires no treatment, so patients have very early disease, and all they, I think, require is to be educated about the disease, to know that there are options available to them if their symptoms become worse.
The medical treatment um, primarily is with medications that treat the symptoms, so they don't treat the underlying disorder. Treatment has been aimed at replacing the dopamine that is deficient in Parkinson's disease. And one can do that in two ways. One can give what's called a dopamine agonist. That's a drug that acts like dopamine but actually isn't. Or one can give the precursor of dopamine that the body then converts to dopamine. And that's the drug called levodopa. The number of pills I take every day is phenomenal. Eight cinnamon pills, five Comptons, and three Requip every day. We typically will start a patient on a dopamine agonist, particularly if the patient is younger than the age of about 70, something of that sort. Dopamine agonists are typically well tolerated, uh, but the dose has to be built up gradually. Among the side effects are mental side effects, which may occur particularly in older people, which is why we prefer not to use these drugs in, in the elderly. There are effects on the blood pressure, there are curious side effects uh, which affect our ability to control impulsive behavior. It's a great relief to me when I take those pills. Cinemet four times a day, Mirapex three. Generally, that keeps me under control. As the disease continues to advance over the years, however, we'll almost certainly need to introduce also uh, levodopa, which is commonly in the form of Cinemet in the United States. We usually try to avoid giving it to patients too early, only because after several years, some patients may develop complications to it in which their response fluctuates, so that they develop on periods in which they respond well to the medication, and off periods in which they seem to be almost frozen into immobility and appear to be unresponsive to the medication. And these response fluctuations may occur several times over the course of a day. And they're very difficult to treat. I walk around with the pill box in my pocket, so I remember my medication. Then there are other medications that we can add in that prolong the effect of, uh, of Cinemat, so that the dopamine stays there for longer and is able to ex exert its beneficial effects for longer. Medications are, are worth, worth having, even if it has some side effects that, that aren't uh, desirable. I mean, it's a balancing job. You have to balance, do you want to do something or do you not want to suffer from side effects? There's an arsenal of medications, and the thing with Parkinson's and why you need to monitor patients carefully is that you have to tweak them. It's not like you give them a pill and that's it, and you don't think about it anymore. It really needs to be constantly reevaluated. When you take these pills, sometimes you'll, you'll exhibit some side effects that you wonder what was causing it. But if you have an understanding of how the pills work and what they're designed to do, uh, you, you'll, uh, you, you'll know with uh, more accuracy what, what, what pill to, 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 to uh, back off on. One of the complications of levodopa therapy or cinemet therapy is that um, it may cause abnormal movements. We call these abnormal movements dyskinesias. Um, and there may be movements about the mouth or the face, movements about the trunk, about the arms and legs, and they can become extremely violent, very difficult to control, 
Uh, and they're caused by the medication. If we lower the dose of medication, the movements may diminish or even go away, but then the Parkinsonism becomes more severe and the patient becomes less able to manage. Patients will usually tolerate a degree of dyskinesias that many family members find distressing to watch. But in some patients, the dyskinesias can become so severe that it leads to weight loss and they simply can't even sit in a chair. Those patients may well benefit from surgery, from deep brain stimulation. Now, in considering patients for potential surgical treatment, we need to ensure that we're dealing with patients who have classic Parkinson's disease, who have no disturbance of intellectual function, who are able to understand the expectations of, of surgical treatments. Dr. Emenov recommended surgery, and I was scared. I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> Deep brain stimulation, or DBS, is uh, essentially a pacemaker, uh, but instead of going to the heart, it goes to the brain. And we're able to uh, affect the activity in a certain part of the brain uh, that is involved in the generation of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And we can make some of the symptoms of Parkinson's better by using this technique. So, I decided... <laughs> You know, I, I'll, I'll do the surgery, and whatever happens, happens. DBS is most helpful for five particular symptoms of Parkinson's. Tremor, rigidity or stiffness, slowness of movement, walking difficulties, and finally, dyskinesias, these involuntary movements that can be a side effect of medication. The, the improvements were unbelievable. I mean, it was like a different person. My walker right now, it's stored in a garage, collecting dust. In general, we can improve a function by 60% or more. I go in the garden, I plant flowers, I take care of my roses, <laughs> I, uh, I make silk flower baskets, you know? So... Uh, yeah, I'm not walking, but I'm walking in the house and uh, taking care of my family, which for a while the family took care of me. And it keeps people productive. It keeps them working. It keeps them from falling and breaking a hip. It keeps them out of uh, a nursing facility, a long-term nursing care facility. I don't fall anymore at all. I even went on vacation this summer. To Memphis, Tennessee. There's also a common misperception that if you have DBS, you can throw all of your Parkinson's medications in the garbage. And that's really not the case. Uh, a typical patient that undergoes DBS gets about a 50% reduction in the amount of their medications. And so what we do is we strive to, to strike a balance between stimulation and medications. Even before I went for a first visit, after, uh, what, two weeks after surgery, I already reduced my pills from eight and a half to two and a half and felt great about it. After DBS, the patient still has Parkinson's. Their Parkinson's will continue to progress despite the fact that they're being stimulated. There is such a thing as waiting too long to do surgery. If uh, a patient's symptoms have progressed to the point where medications are no longer effective at all, it means that surgery will be no longer effective. 
by understanding the disease and understanding that it is actually a, it is actually a problem of neural circuits, that we may actually be able to develop treatments for the disease that may not even be pharmacological. They may not involve drugs. They may simply involve exercising the brain in some particular way that we don't understand yet, in a way that will actually reverse the process before it has gone too far. So we don't really understand what that is yet. We need to understand more about the circuits. You know, we send patients for physical therapy because we do think it helps with their symptoms, but what I'm talking about is some sort of exercise for the circuits of the brain, which may reverse the process in some physiological way that doesn't, may not even require drugs. I typically get up about 5.30 in the morning and take the dogs for about an hour walk. Physical activity has always been a big part of my life, and I've always been in pretty good physical shape. There is emerging research that supports the idea that an active lifestyle may forestall the progression of Parkinson's disease. I can't divide my attention when I'm doing something. I'm either walking or I'm talking. It also gives the patient a sense that they are doing something to fight their disease. I've taken up yoga because of the uh, stretching that, that's involved with it. And, and uh, that, that, that seems to provide some, some uh, relief. I can walk into yoga with a stiff leg and a dragging arm, and I leave and I'm walking normally. So you think I would do it more often. <laughs> Throughout the course of Parkinson's disease, I counsel patients to develop a program of stretching um, and range of motion exercises to keep the shoulders loose and mobile because preventative care is much better than having to deal with an established um, impingement syndrome. I strongly counsel patients to develop an exercise routine that is sacred, that is one of their priorities in any day. Walking, jogging, dancing, swimming, uh, I think can be very helpful in keeping um, mobility around all joints and also keeping general cardiovascular fitness. I strongly recommend uh, physical therapy for gait and balance training to help reconnect with the reflexes of balance. It gets harder the longer you're up there. Yeah. And to practice falling avoidance. I think exercise is probably one of the number one things people can do. It helps cognition. It helps generate new stem cells and new neurons in the brain. It also helps people's um, movement issues as well. One of our collaborators here at UCSF has an active interest in really pushing the system, even in individuals who are no longer able to easily run on their own. She has a very interesting device that she's using in clinical studies that actually reduces the weight that a person experiences when standing or walking and can take a person who has great difficulty taking large steps and running and basically, as she says, unweight the patient with this pressurized device that allows a person to walk safely and to run safely and to really push their cardiovascular limits. And this is a really exciting area to see if this sort of intervention can be useful in reducing the progression of Parkinson's disease. Occupational therapy is important. As this disease advances, it's important to ensure that the patient is safe at home. Are you still completely independent? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can dress yourself? Oh, yeah. Wash yourself? Right. It may be hard to drink um, from a cup because of a marked tremor, for example. So the use of a cup with a spout and a cover to it may help patients uh, drink. You know, I feel like I can accommodate whatever comes along, and I'm ready to. I am a pastor of a church in San Francisco, and the decision to tell my congregation was very difficult. If they see me or they see their vision of me is that I'm weak or disabled, then they won't share with me, and then I won't be able to help them carry their... Uh, problems. It, it has been a tremendous challenge uh, to faith because I thought I had it all figured out. You have to face a disease and deal with it yourself. It's a tough one to take, but there's a lot of, lot of life left. Well, I think the thing to do is don't worry about it and try and just lead your life to the fullest possible extent. It seems like everyone I know who has Parkinson's has a dog, and I just think that they keep you going and moving, and it's, they don't care that I have Parkinson's. <laughs> I took up a new hobby. I play the ukulele. I read more. I get involved with politics. In a way, it, it's caused me to look at other things that are important in life and, and, and with more appreciation for things. I have a blog which it's, um, it's gotten 700,000 hits. And so it's interesting to me how many people read about it. But I find that really therapeutic to get let some of my feelings out, but it also allows my friends to look at it and not have to hear it from me, but to know how I'm feeling. I've actually uh, become support group leader uh, about four years after I, I entered a support group. You know, the fact that these people were reaching out to support me and my problems, it's, it means a lot. Patients have to take the responsibility to build their own raft, develop support groups, keep a positive attitude. The surprise, the unknown, is very difficult for me. Uh, and so I, I accept kindness, and I embrace it. I need it. I want people to help me. We have an online support group as a Facebook thing, and it's about 18 women who are all diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's, and we're all kind of, the one rule is you have to try to remain positive, and we try not to feed off of each other's negative things, but that's really helped me out a lot. I think Dr. Christine is great. He lets me write him emails, he corresponds with me through email, and he's always really positive and supportive, and even in my fundraising, he donates money to me um, for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. I think that's just, I know he cares, and he always hugs me hello and goodbye, and he always, you know, checks on me for my mental well-being, and I think he truly cares, and I think he wishes even more than I do at times that there was a cure. We do outreach, we do teaching, we're involved in teaching residents and fellows. We have experts in the field, and these experts actually see the patients. We have multidisciplinary experts as well, which bring their knowledge base to our treatment of patients. And then the science and the research. And there are new therapies, things like gene therapy, which we've been involved with a lot here at UCSF. Um, 
the potential future for stem cell therapies. Uh, the future for treatment is really very, very bright. I'm open to anything. I'll do anything. Anything that is coming down, any kind of uh, new medication, please put me on it. You know, uh, And one of them, in fact, has been <laughs> really negative for me. Uh, it really exacerbated the symptoms. Uh, but I don't care, because I, I, if, if it's out there, I want to find it. Said so once I came to terms with it, that's when I decided I'm going to go to UC where they've, they know what's going on, they're, they're on the cutting edge, and I want to be part of that um, for my own sake and, and for the, I, whatever help I can give them into, you know, into their research into this. So that was, I mean, I get a lot of benefit or a lot of pluses out of being part, part of the UC system. Another strength to our center has been a very um, uh, close collaboration with basic science investigators. When I go to clinic, I'm doing research most of the time. I benefit from the expertise of my clinical colleagues who are seeing patients all the time. At the same time, uh, I can make suggestions to them about clinical research and taking it in directions that they might not have appreciated because I'm thinking about it from a, a different perspective. This sort of research may really provide uh, new ways of uh, slowing disease progression or perhaps even halting disease progression. Parkinson's disease is a disorder that inevitably is going to affect somebody you know or a family member or a friend's family member and that really there's lots of advocacy work that is still left to be done. One of the missions over the last 20 some years really is to come up with some clever way to control the delivery of therapeutics to the brain directly to the side that it's missing that particular chemical or protein. So in order to prove that, of course, you have to have some proof of principle studies in, in animal models, and that's what FDA requires, of course, before we are allowed to, to practice this in patients. We have recently completed a gene therapy trial and working on gene therapy delivery systems and on specific gene therapies uh, here at UCSF in animals. And we've translated that into the clinic and indeed undertaken gene therapy studies in humans, the results of which are now uh, published. My group has been working over the years on trying to re-deliver drugs directly to the brain using neurosurgical technology and then be able to distribute the drug and deliver the drug only to the region that we believe is missing that particular chemical. So two things work to our advantage in this technology. One is that obviously we can bypass the blood-brain barrier and number two, we can have a very specialized and localized delivery of the compound. Um, with the known therapeutic properties. We're able to translate this technology into the clinic where, in fact, we are able to put the cannula into the part of the brain called putamen and then using an infusion system, which we call convection hands delivery, we're able to push the viral particles which encode for a missing gene in the brains of uh, those Parkinsonian patients and be able to distribute it within the region which we believe it's highly therapeutic. So now we're using this technology now to deliver the viral vectors. We can use MRI um, to really follow the distribution of this therapeutic agent as we deliver it to the brain. Uh, it gives us a complete control of um, where the therapeutic agent is going to go, but also allows us to stop the infusion if 
if for some reason that distribution isn't exactly what we were hoping for. I, I went through a clinical trial here at UCSF, and uh, I had a uh, gene transfer therapy where, where they injected a gene into a part of my brain to stimulate it into producing dopamine. And uh, it produced great results. What we had seen in this first group of patients with UCSF also convinces us that our local administration of this particular therapeutic to the brain is possible. Um, we obviously like to improve on that. We develop a complementary and uh, more robust technology right now to, uh, to take it to the next step. But that first translation of that technology that we've developed in the patients was successful. I'm happy I did this because it gave me a chance to contribute something to science. Even though it isn't the uh, cure, it might be a, a step in learning more about the disease and, uh, and benefit, benefit people. If you just think about this whole concept of being able to um, to deliver substances to the brain uh, that can rejuvenate the cells or give rise to the cells which are within the brain, and these are stem cells, that may be able to actually pick up the function of the neuron that has died. Uh, and this is the ultimate goal. And I don't think I'm imagining things. I mean, we have proof um, that this actually can take place. Because Parkinson's is within a, a small area in the brain, it's a good candidate for stem cell research. There are many fundamental questions that need to be answered before stem cell therapy can be brought into the clinical arena. Part of that is we have to be cautious. So the stakes are high. I mean, that could really be a incredibly um, good news for, for the patients with Parkinson's disease. Yeah, I was talking to my wife just the other night, and, and, and the words came out of my mouth, you know, I'm so happy these days. Life is very good, you know, even though, even though I, I've got this thing. I believe that they're going to find a cure for this thing, and, and this will not be the way that I end. <laughs> so those kind of hopes, you know, and seeing wonderful things, you know, like success on my job, uh, my children succeeding, my wife happy. These are, these are incredible things, and if I can just keep my eyes on that, rather than the original diagnosis, I can make it. I think PD is not a death sentence. I think people with PD can live long and fulfilling lives. They can continue to work. They can have um, the kind of life that they would wish to have. And there may be some restrictions, but it's not a dead end. And I think sometimes patients, when they get the diagnosis, they immediately see themselves in a wheelchair. And that's really not what the disease is about. Parkinson's disease is different for each individual. It's possible to live with Parkinson and still have a normal life and uh, take care of your, yourself and your home and your family. I think what I would like other people to do is to, to get involved. You know, let's, let's become militant about it and try to find a way to, to solve this problem. 
of all of the neurodegenerative disorders, we really know the most, if you will, about Parkinson's. Uh, we know the part of the brain that's affected. Uh, we know what the cells in that part of the brain do. Uh, I mean, it's, it's probably a ways off still, but Parkinson's will probably be the first neurodegenerative disorder for which we find a cure. You know, without patients and their willingness to, uh, to trust in us, um, to believe in what we're doing, you know, we'd never be able to, to prove this technology. This is a disease for which there's every reason to be optimistic. There are many different uh, therapeutic developments being explored um, that I think hold a great promise for the future. This is a disease in which there's a great deal of work being undertaken at the present time, um, much of which I think the general public are not aware of. There are many clinical trials of potential uh, therapeutic agents underway, and if patients want to take part in these trials, they only have to contact us. Um, so I'd like patients to go away with the belief that um, being told that they have Parkinson's disease does not mean that they're being told that this is the beginning of the end. You know, when I talk to my friends who are in the industry, they just, they have so much hope and they like really truly believe that they will find a cure. And that conveyed to me is a message that it just keeps me going. You know, believing is a strong medicine. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.